0: another exciting proposal to fund maintenance and construction of the nation's transportation infrastructure, and not enough money to pay for it. Hi everybody, I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. President Trump has proposed an ambitious program to build much-needed infrastructure and repair our current system of roads, rails, ports, airports, and waterways. But like every similar proposal put forth in the last couple of decades, it lacks the federal monies needed to make that happen. That particular can continues to be kicked down the road. In the meantime, we're told that private funding can fill the gap. But many experts don't think so. They believe we ought to be raising the federal fuel tax, which has remained at the same level for 25 years, to pay for infrastructure improvements. But even that idea won't entirely solve the problem at a time when hybrid and electric cars are slashing the amount of gas being used by drivers. We'll talk solutions today with my guest, Carrie O'Hare. She is Vice President and Director of Policy with Building America's Future, the bipartisan coalition dedicated to funding American infrastructure. And we'll find out whether the political winds are blowing in that direction. So here is my conversation with Carrie O'Hare.
1: Carrie O'Hare, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Carrie, where are we right now? How close are we to actually making real progress on rebuilding, maintaining, and reconstructing new transportation infrastructure for this country?
1: Well, it's kind of a tough question to answer. In some respects, we're closer than we have ever been, but yet in some respects, we're further away. And let me explain a little bit more about what I mean by that. We have a president who, uh, to his credit, talked a lot about rebuilding the nation's infrastructure during his campaign, and has also talked about it since he's gotten into the White House. And even put forth a proposal up to Congress in February. Whether or not it's going to become law, that's the part where we might be a little bit further away. There is, I think, an acknowledgement amongst many members of Congress and also in the stakeholder community that we are very appreciative that the president has put forth a plan to start the discussion. What it comes down to, I think, is where are the dollars to pay for it? And I'll speak for Building America's Future to say that we would love to see a much bigger federal, Funding commitment to it than what is currently being planned, and uh, the president's proposal is about 1.5 billion dollars over 10 years, and the federal component of that is 200 billion dollars over the next 10 years. Which, when you look at it over a 10-year basis, that's not really that much money.
0: Let me back you up for a moment. You said 1.5 billion over 10 oh, years. I
1: meant trillion. I meant trillion. trillion. That's, that's, what I, that's what I that's what I thought you meant. Thank you. So, so
0: yeah. 1.5 trillion over 10 years. Federal component 200 billion over that same time.
1: Correct. Correct. Got okay. much, much bigger difference there. It's not just a federal responsibility to go ahead and modernize our nation's infrastructure. It's really something where all levels of government and the private sector need to be involved. But the federal government needs to have a leading role in this. And Building America's Future would like to see much more of a federal role in what has been proposed. All right. So
0: we do not lack for proposals. We have not lacked for proposals over the years. During the Obama administration, they they were accused of being slow in coming up to speed on this topic. But once they got going, they put out one or two proposals that got a lot of attention from industry that looked like they were pretty good. Also, were a little short on the funding part. Mm. So there doesn't seem to be anything particularly new about this one. The money, though, is the big problem. We have heard Speaker Ryan and other Republicans say not a chance of increasing the, the fuel tax which has been the basis of the Highway Trust Fund for all those years. Can we get by without doing that?
1: I don't think so. The Highway Trust Fund and the federal gasoline tax is the big pot of money that that built America. And without a robust funding source, we're not really going to get that far. Think about this. The last time that the federal gas tax was increased was 25 years ago in 1993. Everything that you can think of has gone up in price and in cost since 1993. Let's take a couple of examples. Back in 1993, you could get a first class stamp for 25 cents. Today, you're paying 49 cents. Back in 1993, a movie ticket, average price about $4. Today, average price about $11. What hasn't changed at all? The gas tax. 18.4 cents in 1993. cents in 2018. And over time, because it hasn't been indexed for inflation, it's lost about 40% of its purchasing power. And on top of that, I mean, the gas tax, I believe, needs to be something that is sustainable over the long term And in some respects, it's a little bit in doubt that that could be the case. I mean, look at the fuel efficiency of cars has increased dramatically over that time. So even though more cars are driving more, they're much more fuel efficient, And less money, less revenue from the gas tax is coming into the highway trust fund, so it's running a gigantic deficit. So we need a robust increase in the gas tax, and we need to index it to inflation. But then we also need to look at things that are going to be more sustainable going forward. And you talk about the fuel efficiency of the cars, but what about the growing number of hybrid cars that use less gasoline? What about the growing number of electric cars? You have companies like Volvo who recently came out and said that by 2019, 2020, they're going to be making entirely electric vehicles. So the change is coming. So how do we make sure that Drivers of all of these types of vehicles are paying their fair share on the roads. The states, I think that what Congress really needs to do is look towards the states to see what they've been doing. And the, and the story has been pretty good there. Since 2013, 24 states have increased their gas taxes. And we're talking red states like Wyoming, Georgia, blue states, California, Maryland. They've all raised it. They've also done other things. They've seen the fuel efficiency issue growing and the electric vehicles. So many of them have put on additional fees onto electric vehicles. Some of these states are looking at doing pilots to find an alternate way to charge drivers to make sure they're paying their fair share.
0: Isn't Oregon one of those states? Didn't they yes. attempt a per-mileage levy? Correct. Is that still in effect? And if so, how is that going?
1: Their pilot started a couple of years ago, and I believe there's excuse me about 2,000 participants in it. So Oregon, which interestingly enough, as an aside, was the first state to put in a state gasoline tax, and it's the first state to be piloting a VMT program. So um, Oregon really has been a leader on that.
0: VMT, Vehicle Miles Traveled, correct? Correct.
1: But other states are looking at it too. And Congress even realizes that this is something that Congress needs to pay a lot closer attention to. So, in the big transportation bill in 2015, there was $95 million included in there for a pilot program that states could apply for to show the feasibility of these types of pilot programs. So, you have a couple of other ones going on right now. California uh, is doing one, Colorado is doing one. There's a consortium of states along the East Coast that are banding together to start doing one. So once there's much more data on how these systems can work, it's something that the federal government needs to take a look at uh, going forward. But until we get to that point, and it's probably at least 10 years away, we need to rely on the gas tax.
0: Is there a downside to basing
1: it on vehicle miles traveled? In my opinion, there isn't. I think that a lot of opponents who don't really like the idea talk about this privacy issue. But one of the things that these pilots are taking a look at, and and Oregon in particular, is that the people that sign up to participate in the the pilot, you're allowed to track the miles that you're driving in various different ways. And if you feel like your privacy is, is being invaded in some way, then you have an option of just reporting your odometer mileage. Though. That's kind of an old school way to do it. There's no technology involved. Or you have an option where you could stick a, a USB into the appropriate port in your car, and it's tracking your mileage. You could do it with a smartphone app. So there are many different ways you could do it. I think that a lot of this is it, people don't like change. They're used to what they've always done, and they don't think about the gas tax. They fill up their cars whenever they need more gas in their car, and they don't think about the tax they're paying. Changing the way that that tax is collected, people are probably automatically going to oppose it just because it's something different. Or they think that they're going to be charged twice, that they're going to be paying a gas tax end a VMT tax on top of that. But the whole point of a VMT is to replace a gas tax, not to enhance authority in in place with a gas tax.
0: But as far as a certain contingent of Republicans and conservatives in this country feel, a tax is a tax is a tax, and they're opposed to just the whole notion of it, regardless of how it's measured. So how do we get past that idea that any tax increase is a bad one?
1: I think it comes down to, in a lot of respects, is the language that you use and the way that you talk about it. And I guess I'm kind of guilty in falling into the old way of talking about it myself. But what it really is, what a gas tax really is, is a user fee. And when you put it in those terms, people understand it more. It's uh, a user fee. Let's let's put it to the minutes that you have on on your cell phone plan. You Mm -hmm. pay for what you use when you drive. If you talk about it in those terms, people understand it a little bit better.
0: What about the philosophical idea of a highway trust fund at all? A number of countries don't have that. A number Mm -hmm. of countries fund their infrastructure from the general treasury. What would it be like if we did it that way?
1: That is a really good point that you bring up, Bob, because in a way, the United States has been moving in that direction since 2008. And since 2008 is when the Highway Trust Fund has started to run out of money. And in order to make sure that it does not go completely insolvent, there's been a transfer of funds from the general fund of the Treasury into the Highway Trust Fund to the point where... It's not necessarily half of the funding that's in the highway trust fund is from the general fund, but a greater portion of it is in there. And you look at the way other transportation programs are being paid for, it's being paid out of the appropriations process and out of the general treasury as opposed to its own user fee. An example of that would be, let's see, airport appropriations are going towards construction of airports. So, it's being done in other areas. It just has not been done specifically on roads, bridges, and transit systems.
0: But when it is done that way, then you face the question of priorities. Correct. Then Congress has to prioritize infrastructure above many other things, and there are these conflicting and competing priorities. Then you're like just in the, in the arena battling tooth and nail for, mm-hmm. for, for infrastructure. Does that become an issue?
1: It absolutely does become an issue because the federal pie, if you look at the federal budget as a pie, the portion of discretionary funding, which is where this transportation funding would come from that part of the pie, has grown smaller and smaller over time. And what what has been taking over that pie is entitlement programs, paying down the national debt, defense programs. And then you're left with this tiny little sliver that's going to be paying for environmental programs, energy programs, transportation, and other things that are really important in people's day-to-day lives. So you're going to have more competition for fewer dollars.
0: You mentioned transportation because public transportation and public transit always seems to make its way into the mix at some point and Mm -hmm. becomes a competition for dollars that would otherwise go to freight projects.
1: Technically, yes, but I think that that's not the right way to look at it because to have a robust transit system and a passenger rail system in the United States is really important as well. The more people that are getting on transit means less people getting on the roadways, which means better freight movement.
0: I think of two conflicting things in terms of selling this to the public. One is that a number of people have said that they would be fine with an increase in the tax and the maintenance of the Highway Trust Fund as long as they could be 100% assured that that money would go toward infrastructure and Mm -hmm. infrastructure only. That Mm -hmm. seems like a compelling argument, does it not?
1: Completely a compelling argument. And that's one of the the beauties of the Highway Trust Fund, is that all of the Mm -hmm. gas taxes go directly into the Highway Trust Fund, which only pays for roads, bridges, and transit systems. And that's something that has been a really positive argument at the state and local levels, too, when they're looking to raise revenue for transportation projects. There have been some areas that have said, "Okay, if you, the voter, are going to approve a half a sales tax increase. Here is a list of the exact projects that are going to be built because of that. And when people see that, they're more apt to say, okay, it's not going into some black hole somewhere. It's not being siphoned off for a project that has nothing to do with transportation. This is going to help me have a better quality of life and waste less time in traffic.
0: But then you put that up against a possible opposing feeling. And that is this feeling that we are suffering from the degrading of a national identity. In other words, people say, why should the money I pay into this pay for a bridge or a highway on the other side of the country? I'm never going to be on that highway. And it's like this, this, this loss of shared purpose that goes against the idea of what I just said about saying, yeah, it's great as long as it's all used for infrastructure, but what if it's not infrastructure that I
1: use? Do you have to fight that attitude? Okay, so this is, this is a podcast about freight movement. So yeah. that's that's a perfect example. So someone who lives in Arlington, Virginia, might go on uh, online and decide, hmm, you know, I, I'm going to buy a new uh, tennis racket and I want that delivered to me. All right, maybe that tennis racket is made out in Los Angeles, California. How mm-hmm. does it get from Los Angeles, California? To Arlington, Virginia. It's going to either go by plane, it's going to go by train, or it's going to go by truck. So you do, as a consumer, need to pay for the system, because if you want these goods delivered in a timely and reliable manner, it's got to come from somewhere. So it's all interconnected. Even going to the grocery store, All of the goods in the grocery store came from somewhere else via freight.
0: Okay, so what about this magic wand idea alternative of so-called public-private partnerships that would supposedly supplant the need for extensive federal dollars? Is that a reality to any
1: degree? Is it a solution? It's not a solution. It is a tool in the toolbox. Public-private partnerships can be great for certain projects, But those projects generally need to have some kind of a revenue component to it. So they're generally, when it comes to the transportation world, they're generally used on things like toll roads. So in the Washington, D.C. area, which is where I live and work, we have really uh, recently been putting in more roads where there are congestion pricing tolls on it.
0: In the area? Out here in California, same thing. And certain fast track roads that cost more to go on in in order to move faster. I mean, what do you think about tolls in
1: general? Are
0: they not the ultimate user fee?
1: They are definitely the ultimate user fee. And when it's not just a toll saying, okay, um, to drive over the George Washington Bridge in the New York City area, let's say it's going to cost you $14, but it's not going to guarantee you a trip that you're driving at 45 miles per hour to get over the bridge and not having congestion. If you put tolls on there that are variable tolls, you're actually getting something for it. And that's what they've been doing in the Washington area. There are some of those projects that are going on in California as well, that if you pay a toll of, let's say the price is $14, you're going to be guaranteed to get from point A to point B in a certain amount of time. And Mm -hmm. while people don't generally go on them all the time, there are certain times when you need to be somewhere. Let's take an example of a parent who is leaving work and they need to go pick up their child from a daycare center. And for every minute or five minutes or whatever that they're late, there's going to be a penalty imposed because you need to be there on time. But you, the parent are running late because a phone call you were on ran later than you wanted to. So you need to get to that place by, let's say, 530. And it's already 10 after 5, and it takes you 30 minutes to get there. So you're going to go into one of these lanes and say, okay, it's worth it for me to pay what the toll is today based upon what the traffic level is, because it's ultimately going to be cheaper for me to pay the toll most of the time than it is to pay the penalty for being late to pick my child up. So statistics are basically that 10% of the drivers are using these lanes 90% of the time and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Most people are not in them all the time, but when you really need to be somewhere, you're pretty much going to get there and that's what you're paying for. So I think that Variable tolls and congestion-priced tolls are more accepted by drivers because they're getting something for it.
0: Are we facing the possibility of taking it too far to the potential privatization of the nation's infrastructure, where everything is just basically pay-as-you-go and it's privately run and privately funded for, you
1: know, for profit? like I said, I think that it's appropriate for some projects, but not for all. You Mm -hmm. necessarily wouldn't be able to build a toll road, let's say, in the middle of Montana, where you just don't have the level of traffic that's going to make it worthwhile, because a private company needs to get a rate of return for the investment that they're putting in there. These types of projects generally work better in congested uh, metropolitan areas, where there's enough traffic volume in order to make it Attractive for a private investor uh, to go in and another thing too. I mean not all states can do public-private partnerships in order to be able to do one There has to be a law on the books in that state saying that they can do it now over time Because federal funding has become less reliable and plentiful in recent years more states Are getting these p3 authorization laws. I think there's right now about 33 states that have had such ability and many of them just because they have the ability doesn't mean they're actually doing them. So yeah. it works in some places. It doesn't work in others. And it's certainly not a panacea for everything. It's, it's one tool in the toolbox.
0: Okay, so let's just circle back to my first question again. I'd like to hear your candid appraisal of just are you optimistic based on all the uh, potential roadblocks we've talked about, most specifically the refusal of uh, major legislators to allow for any increase in the gas tax, How do you assess the chances for us truly building America's future through new infrastructure right now?
1: I personally don't think that Congress is going to act on a a long-term transportation bill this calendar year in 2017. I think there's a much greater likelihood of that happening in 2019. I think that what it's really going to come down to is presidential leadership. And President Trump has said in public and private meetings that everything's on the table as far as paying for it. He might consider supporting a 25-cent gasoline tax increase, as the Chamber of Commerce recently proposed. If he does, if he were to give members of Congress the political cover to do this, I think the chances of something happening are pretty good. But this is an election year. And it's going to be a really tight election year, I think, for um, a lot of the Republicans in Congress. And there's a really good likelihood that one, if not both chambers are going to flip to the Democrats after the 2018 elections. And if that happens, in my opinion, I think there is a greater likelihood of something happening next year because you have more of a negotiation that has to take place. And And I do believe the president does want to see something done. There's certainly a lot of people in Congress that want to see something done. It's just a matter of political courage. It's going to happen at some point.
0: Well, I'd like to check in back with you at that time and see if we've made any progress (laughs) a year from now. But uh, in in the meantime, Carrie O'Hare, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to kind of lay out the landscape of whether we are indeed building America's future right now or not through infrastructure improvements. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you, Bob. It was a pleasure.
0: That was my conversation with Carrie O'Hare of Building America's Future, talking about the prospects for funding the nation's transportation infrastructure. We're online at www.SpliceChainBrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain.